God's people would spread and God's kingdom would reign here on this earth. Now beginning with chapter 12 on through the 22nd chapter, we're going to have the same thing restated with different images. We're going to go back and, and have the, again the persecuting forces identified, some other statements. Uh, there's going to be a mention of a beast that was a persecutor against the Christians. And then we're going to see this beast turn on the persecuting force against the church, the, the Jewish people that have been persecuting and trying to stamp out Christianity. And then we'll culminate in the latter part of Revelation again with the statement that of God's kingdom that is going to reign on this earth and, and the, the this good news, the message, eternal life that is going out to all mankind. And then Revelation will end just like it started. It'll end with John making the statement that these events that he has just forecast all the way through the book, just as he said initially, were near at hand, were imminent, were speedily to come to pass. And so he ends his letter by reminding of the same thing, that it is imminent, speedily at hand. What I want to do tonight is before taking the second segment, while I've got this fresh on my mind, because of the study just recently had on it, as we go through here, I want to tie it all together and point out that in the New Testament, all, A-L-L, all of these judgment situations that we have read about, all of these statements of the coming of the Lord, all of these statements of dealing with the persecuting force of Christianity, had reference to these same events that we're dealing with in Revelation, that all through the New Testament, the number one persecuting force against Christianity was Judaism. It was the number one force against it. It pursued Christianity all over the Roman world. It did all it could to stop the proclamation of the message to the Gentiles. And all through the New Testament, the apostles have spoke and looked forward to this day that is so imminent in Revelation. Uh, James and Peter identified it as that day that was near at hand. Uh, Peter, both his letters, written in the 60s, uh, Peter said that there was now time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And he identified the judgment that he talked about in First and Second Peter with this imminent judgment that was coming on those forces and something that was near at hand. James, writing to Christians that are being persecuted, again speaks of an imminent judgment that was, that was near and, and waiting at the door for these people. In James, the fifth chapter, the Hebrew writer, the same thing, dealing with Christians being persecuted, deals with the imminent downfall of the persecutors, the imminent judgment of the persecutors themselves. And then in the book of Thessalonians, and the reason I'm going to pause here and look at first the Thessalonians and first and second Thessalonians, Jack, you're going to get a third dose about the last, uh, third time in the last four weeks, Jack and Louise. I'm going to have to go very quickly to, to cover this information the time that we've got. And so what I'll do is I'm going to get some high points, all in Thessalonians is those parts dealing with the persecution of God's people and then God's judgment. And the reason we're going to do this is because there is some language that's used in Thessalonians that's going to be used in the second half of Revelation. And remember what we've noted so far, that part of understanding what is said here is noticing the difference between literal language and 
bits of information here where the same kind of language is used that we're going to see used later on uh, in this judgment situation that we're reading about in the book of Revelation. And again, we want to tie it all together, beginning with the Gospels, where the Lord promised the downfall of the Jewish nation, the destruction of their temple, judgment that would come about in their generation during the lifetime of that people. And then all during the book of Acts, we see the persecution of Christians by Judaism. And then throughout the letters, we find the apostles writing to these Christians that are being persecuted. Many are falling by the wayside because of the persecution. And then reminding them that the Lord was coming. And the Lord was going to take judgment under persecuting forces. All of this will culminate in Revelation. But what we want to show is, is just how neatly and perfectly that Revelation culminates something that's been talked about throughout the entire New Testament. And the last great evidence, the final great evidence given to mankind of the deity of Jesus and the fact that he had been ordained king of kings and lord of lords and was sitting on the right hand of God was when he came in judgment on the Jewish nation just exactly as he said he would. Jesus made two great prophecies. Once he looked at his own, speaking of his own body, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And he, they foretold it so, so vividly to their minds that they even put a guard on his tomb. And there was a second prophecy. He told those Jews that they would have a generation to respond to the good news of salvation and healing. That this message would go out to the entire world of that day. And that all Jews would be given the opportunity, along with the Gentiles they came in contact with along the way. But then once the good news had been preached to that generation and they had opportunity for it, his next prophecy was that I'm going to destroy your city. I'm going to destroy your temple. I'm going to wipe out the old covenant. And then this system that you're persecuting and trying to stop, I'm going to fill the earth with that message. Okay, now in the 11th chapter, last week we culminated with the holy city being trampled underfoot by, for three and a half years. It's expressed in terms of 42 months. It's expressed in terms of 1260 days. It's, it's, it's expressed in terms of time, times, and half a time. In other words, in three different ways. He allows us to see this, and we noted it's extremely interesting that when we go to the record of Josephus and to the other historical works of that time, we find that the war between Israel and Rome lasted three and a half years, beginning in February of 67, culminating in August of 70 AD. Now, in the 11th chapter, you have the downfall, first the, the persecution of God's people and the dead bodies that lie in the city, and then the downfall of the city itself, as these prophets are vindicated, and then the statement that God's kingdom now had become the kingdom of the world, beginning with verse uh, 15 and 16, and then the fact, then the filling of the earth with that kingdom. Okay, now, let's pause there. Come on over to Thessalonians. And again, we want to look at something to start and note, just as we did in Revelation, the importance of looking at material in context. Uh, one, of the great, one of the great things that people have done in order to help us divide the Bible up and communicate with one another, and where I can tune you in or you tune me into where you're speaking, is to divide it up in chapters and verses. But what was intended as a help has many times been a hindrance to people in understanding the Bible, because when they think of the books, they think of them in terms of chapters 
wrote what we call Second Thessalonians as another letter, just as Revelation was written in one letter. Each of these letters were intended to be written, read in one sitting and understood in their entirety. And the early church in that first century did not sit down and break up any of these letters into little individual verses and then spend several hours pondering over those verses. They just simply read the letter and got the message in its entirety. All right, now, look at the theory language that we're familiar with over in Revelation, our first Thessalonians 4, and beginning with verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left in the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will come from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we all be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, let's back up to the first chapter. And what we just read there, we're going to see that terminology when we get to it, that that same terminology that we just read in 1 Thessalonians 4 is also used in the book of Revelation. And it's also used earlier in the Gospels in Matthew 24. Now let's back up earlier and look at the writer and look at it in its context. Okay, beginning with chapter 1, notice some things about, about the church there. In verse uh, 6, they were to be imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcome the message of the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so these people, when they got the message itself, suffered and were persecuted as a result of the message being proclaimed to them. All right, now, as you read that and the opposition that was given to them, in fact, come on down to the second chapter and look at verse 2. Latter part of the verse, we dare to tell you the gospel in spite of strong opposition. Well, now the question becomes, where did this strong opposition come from? And where was this, this severe suffering that these people were undergoing? What was the source of that suffering? Now, this is important because those that caused the opposition, those that caused the suffering, it makes this statement concerning them in verse 10 of chapter 1. And the way for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And so there was a coming wrath on the persecutors of these people. The question is, who are the persecutors? Who is it that is bringing all the suffering from the church of the Thessalonians? Well, before we go ahead and let him identify, let's just pause back right there and back up to the book of Acts. Back up to the book of Acts. Chapter 17. Okay, look at verse 1. When they had passed through Amphibolus and Apollina, they came to Thessalonica. Okay, first in Thessalonians, the people of Thessalonica. Where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded, and 
Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters in the marketplace, and they formed a mob and started a riot in the city. And they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. They made Jason and the others postpone to let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were a more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as also a number of the prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But notice now, when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Korea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and steering them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Okay, now let's get back over here to Thessalonians. Notice what you have. <clears throat> Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. You've identified in the first chapter that these people are suffering. They're being persecuted. And they receive the message under suffering and persecuting persecution. They are waiting for a wrath to come, and a wrath that they expect to be delivered from, a wrath that's going to be poured out on their enemies. We back up and we look at the Acts, the 17th chapter, where the church was established among the Thessalonians, and we find they first go into the Jewish synagogues and proclaim the message. Some believe, but those Jews that rejected the message began a severe persecution on the Christians. The persecution was so severe that Paul and Silas leave town. They go into Berea. The Bereans are complimented for being noble-minded and receiving the word, and not like the Thessalonians. But then we see something else. The Thessalonians pursue them into Berea, and they stir up a riotous mob against them. And so even in Berea, the Jewish people from Thessalonica began to persecute and stamp, try to stamp out Christianity and to stop the spread of this message even among the Gentiles. And so now as we read this in the Thessalonian letter, we know that this church had its birth in Jewish persecution. And we know that the Jews weren't just persecuting Jews who became Christians. They were persecuting the apostles everywhere they went. And as the apostles preached even to the Gentiles, the Jews were steering up the mobs against them. In other words, we can see the tremendous force that Judaism is against Christianity, in particular here, the church at Thessalonica. And at the time Paul writes this letter, the church here is still being persecuted by the Jews that rejected. They still are suffering as a result of the Jews that rejected their Messiah. And now he promises them a wrath to come in judgment. Now, come on down, and he speaks in the second chapter, verse 12, and the latter part of the verse, of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. They were being called into God's kingdom and his glory. And then look at verse, uh, let's see, 14. You brothers became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are also in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same thing those 
up their sins to the limit, the wrath of God has come on who? Has come on them to be at last. Okay, what do we have? Look at verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven. Where is the wrath going to come? When his son from heaven comes, who he raised from the dead, Jesus is rescued, rescues us from the coming wrath. So there is a coming wrath. These Jews that are persecuting Christianity, Paul writes, writes to the Christians, he's trying to encourage them to hang in there. God's wrath is coming on your persecutors. He identifies the Jews, not only as the people who killed the Lord Jesus, in verse 14, they, verse 14 and verse 15, they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. They drive the apostles out. They're displeasing to God. Notice they're hostile not just to the Jews, they're hostile to all men. In their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, they're concerned even with the salvation and the proclamation of this message to keep the Gentiles. In this way, all, they always keep up their sins to the limit. Notice the wrath of God has come on them at last. And so as he writes this letter, he's waiting for the wrath of God to come on the Jewish people who are persecuting and trying to stamp out Christianity, and that's his concern with the letter. Now, come on down to verse 19 of chapter 2. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown, in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. They were waiting for that coming of the Lord. They were going to glory in it. What was going to happen? God's wrath, Paul has said, is going to be poured out on the Jewish persecutors. Now, in verse 4, chapter 3. When we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. It turned out that way. As you well know, for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. And so Paul said, when I preached to you, we told you you were going to be persecuted. And Paul was concerned even as he leaves. Remember, he just didn't walk out of town. He and Silas were pretty well forced out of town. And they were fleeing all the time they were preaching. Well, then Paul, just like you would be concerned, if you had converted a group of people and their very conversion caused their persecution, you would be concerned about it. And so Paul's concerned about the church of Thessalonica. He's also concerned that they know that the Lord is coming in judgment on their persecuting force. Okay, verse 7 of chapter 3. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. Verse 13. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And so all through here, through three chapters, this coming of the Lord with his holy ones has to do with God's wrath that is coming on the Jewish people who are doing everything they can to stamp out Christianity and have fallen tooth and nail all the way. Now, from that background, we get into what we just read in chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve about the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died, rose again, and we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who fall asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left at the coming of the Lord. Notice, there are going to be those, he said, we... He said, according to the Lord's own word, what did the Lord say? The Lord said, in this generation, while some of you are still alive, I'm coming back in judgment. 
And so Paul now says, according to the Lord, Lord's own word, we, including himself, that are still alive and left at the coming of the Lord, will certainly not perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of the call of God. The day in Christ will rise. And after that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we also be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Notice these words now that he just said were the encouragement to them at that time. Who was to be encouragement to? Those people that were being persecuted and had been told that God's wrath was going to come on the persecuting forces and God's wrath on the persecuting forces would be delivered to them. Now, hold your place there. Look at what you just read. That he's called together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. And then you've got the trumpet that's called in verse 16. Come over here to hold your place here. And turn over to Matthew 24.
this point, Christianity is looked on by the world as a little bitty wayward sect within Christianity. Something that the Jews are trying to stamp out, something that they're trying to promote as a falsehood. But the Lord has said, I'm coming in judgment on you Jews. I'm going to destroy your city. I'm going to wipe out the temple. I'm going to burn the place down. Thousands upon thousands of those Jews were going to die. I'm coming in judgment, is what, is what he said, on his own people. And when the Lord came in judgment and then was victorious, from that we now have Jesus in his glory, his kingdom. Well, he is king, and his subjects are the kingdom. And this message will be spread to the ends of the earth, or from the four winds of heaven. His angels will go out and spread that message all over, and everybody that submits to the message will have eternal life. Now, continue right on to the fifth chapter. Notice how important the context now, because just as is chapter 4 was preceded by chapters 1, 2, and 3, it's also followed by the fifth chapter. And again, important, because most of the time, we read those few verses in chapter 4 without first reading the first three chapters and without reading what follows afterwards. Notice now the first verse of chapter 5. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. All right, now notice, you've all heard it preach that the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. But let's continue on. Notice what he says. But you, brothers, those people he's writing to them, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are the sons of light, the sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep. Let us be alert and self-control. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us. Okay, now, he comes on down and notice what's going to happen in his coming in verse 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and will do it. And then verse 27. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Okay, now what do we have? The Lord coming as a thief in the night? Yes. To the persecuting unbelievers. But remember, the Lord has given these people his word. And he said, here are the signs of my coming. And so after we read this statement in the fourth chapter, we've already seen that when we read the first three chapters, we have the Jewish people as the persecuting force of the church. And we have God's wrath promised to those people. And we looked at what a severe persecution it was when you became a Christian in that time. We even backed up and looked at the history in Acts 17 of the starting of the church of Thessalonica. We looked in at this fourth chapter and have seen that the type of language that is used about the Lord coming in a cloud and the gathering of his elect by the angels is the exact same type of language that's used when the Lord spoke of the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24 and made us 
come about in their generation. Then when we continue on into what we divide and call the fifth chapter, we find that this business of the Lord coming as a thief in the night was only for the unbelievers that didn't believe the Lord. For them, they would be saying peace and safety, you know, and it's time to get married and everything's going great. And judgment would come up. But he says, you're not this way. Speaking to the people directly then, he says, you're the sons of light. You've got the information. You know the signs of the times. You've been given the information. So when you see all these things about to happen, you're going to exceed this wrath. And it's the same again message that we're going to have over Revelation. God's people are going to suffer. But then they are going to exceed that wrath because they have the information and they will see the signs taking place around them. Now, come right into 2 Thessalonians. Remembering now, the 2 Thessalonians is written to the same group of people. Just a short time after. And I mean a very short time after 1 Thessalonians. Okay, now, in verse 3, he says, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. The love of every one of you has each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith, notice now, in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. And so when he writes 2 Thessalonians, they are still in persecution, they are still in trials, and he is complimenting them on their perseverance for hanging in there. Remember, it's just written in the first letter that we read. All this is, notice now, this persecution that they were suffering, and continue to suffer is evidence of something. Notice what it's evidence of. All this, verse 5, is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. He's not talking to Paul Cook in the 20th century. And he's not talking to the church at Collins. He's talking to the church at Thessalonica who was being severely persecuted. And he said the fact that you are being so severely persecuted by these Jews is evidence that God's judgment is right. In other words, God has promised to judge the Jewish nation and the fact that they keep on persecuting the truth and persecuting people who become Christians is evidence to all that God's judgment is right. That nation needs to be judged. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Give relief to you who are troubled, to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire and powerful angels. Back to the same kind of language you had over in 1 Thessalonians. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power on the day that He comes to be glorified in His holy people. And keep in mind, the same language all the way through here, the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people. And to be marveled at among all those that believe, this includes you because you believe our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of His calling and that by His power you may fulfill every of yours and every act prompted by faith. Okay, come on now to the second chapter. Look at this now. Concerning the coming of our Lord, same coming you read in 1 Thessalonians, same coming you read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 
concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And our men gathered to him, the same gathering together, he's read in 1 Thessalonians 4, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless your bed occurs. Oh, wait a minute now. Look at this very carefully. This has been used to teach that this coming day of the Lord is the end of the world. And that's what he's talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4, according to the way it's been taught. But look what he says. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together into him, we ask you, brothers, notice, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter. Suppose they have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anybody deceive you. Now listen to this. If, you, if those people there thought he was talking about at the end of the world, how could you deceive them by a letter that the end of the world had come? See, somebody has deceived and is trying to deceive the Thessalonians that he's already come. And there's been letters that have been sent out that said, hey, the Lord's already come. And he says, no, he has not come yet. He's not come yet. Don't you be deceived by any letter. If you're talking about the end of the world there, nobody's going to have to write you a letter to let you know what the end of the world does. And nobody can deceive you and say, Cat, the end of the world come last week. Now how in the world, uh, if I could deceive you into thinking that the end of the world come last week, you need more help than you could get out of any book. But what happens when Jerusalem is destroyed? What happens when Israel falls? What happens when we have the final defeat of the Jewish nation? How will the people in Thessalonica get word of this? How will the people in Rome get word of this? How will the people in Troas get word of this? How will the people in Ethiopia get word of this? By letter. You know, back then, with the system that they had, they didn't have air mail, they didn't have cars and roads and everything. Wars were fought, battles were fought, and many times people that lived on fringe areas of some of the various countries would go for months and months at a time before they know and wouldn't find out who won the battle and who won the war. Sometimes you might even have a year or more in the past before somebody way out on the fringe area would find out just exactly what happened and who won that war. And so here they are in Thessalonica being severely persecuted by those Jews who did not become Christians. The birth of the church was under, persecuted, under persecution. God's wrath had been promised on that persecuting force. They were waiting anxiously for Jesus to come as he had promised and to come in judgment on that persecuting force. And his coming in judgment would be deliverance for them. Well, now somebody's come along and is trying to deceive them that he's already come, but the problem is they're still being persecuted. And so they're wondering, what in the world has happened? You're saying he's come and we're still being persecuted? And so Paul writes to them and says, don't let anybody deceive you. He hasn't come yet. He's still coming. Before he comes, there's going to be a falling away. There's an apostasy that is going to take place. There was this man of sin 
who's going to be revealed. There was the Antichrist that John spoke of. There was going to be some more persecution of Christians. In fact, what's going to really happen is before, before he comes in judgment on Israel, Rome also is going to rise up against Christianity. Rome will become a persecuting force, and that's what we're dealing with now as we head in to the 12th chapter of Revelation. We get our first source. This is the first 11 chapters has dealt with the persecution of the Christians by the Jews and the judgment on them. As we get into the 12th chapter, now we get into the situation where we have more than the Jews. We have another force. We have a beast that's identified that performs severe persecution on the Christians. Then we have that beast turn on the first persecuting force of the Christians, and then we have the downfall of that power. Well, as he writes Thessalonians, they don't know about any persecution at all. It has not taken place. The only persecution they're undergoing is the Jews. And Paul lets them know, don't let anybody see you that the Lord's come back yet. There's something worse to come. There's a falling away. There's this great man of sin that's coming. There's going to be more and severe persecution. Then the Lord will come. These two letters written in the 50s. By the time we hit Peter, and by the time we hit Revelation, the events he's talking about in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians will all of a sudden become imminent and near at hand. But even as they're imminent and near at hand, there's something we're going to see as we go through the latter part of Revelation. The same terminology that you and I read about the Lord coming in the clouds and the Lord gathering his elect to it. And then the, the signs of the sun and the moon and the stars, the earth being shaken, the sun not giving its light, the same type of terminology that you've read all through here is the same terminology we're going to read in the second part of Revelation, and it's going to culminate again in the defeat of that persecuting force and then the church going victorious from that. And again, all of this, important is still another way for you and I today. It happened as the second fulfillment of those great prophecies of Jesus. First, his resurrection. Next, his coming on judgment of the Jewish nation. But you and I have something also. And that is that the culmination of all these events, the New Testament letters, are held together and vindicated as inspired of God as they speak of this coming doom and event that was actually and perfectly fulfilled, just as the Lord said. And it becomes the fulfillment. Remember, the Lord spoke several times, such as Matthew 13, or John 13, 19, John 14, 29. I tell you in advance before it comes about, so that when it comes about, you may believe that I am he. And so the events will be foretold. It will come about, and it will be one of the great evidences of the inspiration of the New Testament and the truthfulness of the apostles' preaching, that the Lord came in judgment, just as he said, and this kingdom that he started fulfilled its mission and would conquer the entire civilized world, just as the Lord had said that he would. Okay, we're out of time for tonight. Tomorrow, or next week, I should say, we'll start in with the 12th chapter, and we'll hit the 12th and 13th chapter of Revelations next week. And before we do, or you may want to wait on this, whether you want to go back and have some questions on Thessalonians or you want to hold it, it might be better that you hold it.
because you're going to run into the same terminology and the same language and we'll tie it all together there. And also, before we get out of Revelation, we're going to go to first and second Peter, look at the terminology that's used there in that judgment situation, and see that we've got the same terminology used in Revelation and a type of terminology that's used all through the Bible, and again, speaking of this great, this one great event before we 